I invite you to turn once again to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We've been making verse 6 the focus of these Sundays uh, leading up to Christmas, and we'll look at the passage as a whole, Lord willing, uh, next Lord's Day, Christmas Day. Uh, for now, let me read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll be focusing on that fourth name in verse 6 today. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Prince of Peace, that's the focus for our thoughts today, that theme of peace, of course, is a familiar one at Christmas. We hear a lot about peace at Christmas time, greetings of peace, Christmas cards with peace on them. But of course, this is not a peaceful world, is it? Uh, I was just reading, in fact, I posted a little article uh, in the entryway that you might like to read of of uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Oh, about three, 300 days of war for them now. By this time, uh, the media has gone on to other things. There are celebrities to cover, of course, and other things of like importance in our culture. But, but that uh, goes on, and people still are suffering, and many of them are Christians. In that article, you can read about a uh, young woman named Maria, 24-year-old doctor in northeastern Ukraine, Julia, a, an 18-year-old student uh, in the same area. And after the conflict started, they, they uh, felt called by the Lord to start a ministry uh, to villages, uh, many of them being shelled, of course, and undergoing various forms of hardship. And so Julia and Maria, along with other uh, international workers that have come in to help, travel around from village to village, bringing them food and medicine and holding worship services. Uh, Julia says, people don't say to us, army help us, 
They say, God, help us. And also in that article is, is mention of a young man by the name of Stephen from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who, who after the war started, uh, felt called by God to, to go and to be in that area. And so he's in northeastern Ukraine ministering as well. Uh, he's headed up a, 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 a benevolent foundation called the Ukraine Freedom uh, Project and has been uh, helping Maria and Julia and others distribute supplies there. Uh, Stephen says, I've been to 60 countries and five war zones. This is the most stark example of good versus evil I've seen. But on the other hand, he says, the things that have happened uh, have happened because without God guiding us, we couldn't do this. So even in the midst of conflict, we see God at work in a war-torn area. But what is peace? Well, we may, have, we may have peace in the terms of freedom from outside aggression, but I think we'd have to say that many people in our culture lack peace too. Let's think about peace from a biblical perspective just a moment. The, the scriptures are full of, of this word. You may be familiar with the Hebrew version of this, shalom. It's from a verb that is pronounced uh, something, somewhat the same, shalom or shalam. Uh, and it, it has an interesting root meaning. It basically means to be complete, to be whole not to be lacking. And so uh, that word peace is sometimes used in the sense that we typically use it of peace in terms of uh, peace between peoples. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we read that he, that is Solomon, had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. There's an image of peace there. Freedom from outside aggression, but also the peace of having your own place, having enough to eat, having a home. In the book of the prophet Zechariah, God renews the promise of peace reflecting language that is much the same as that in 1 Kings. This is what the Lord of hosts says through Zechariah to his people, there shall be a sowing of peace. Interesting imagery there, isn't it? Peace will be sown like a crop, like plants. The vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. But it's not just material prosperity that's in mind here. An important part of that peace that the Lord says he, he will bring is this, O house of Judah and house of Israel, I will save you and you shall be a blessing. So perhaps we should put that giving component into peace as well, being a blessing to others. And so he goes on to say to the people, and now we're thinking about their relationships within their community, within their families, Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. 
Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And so with that, with that idea, with that image in mind, he, he says through the prophet, I want you to turn the fasting that you practiced during the exile, I want you to turn those to feast to seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. And he closes that section saying, therefore, love, truth, and peace. Love, truth, and peace. So there's peace in terms of being free from outside aggression, but there's also that peace that comes in a harmony within a family, within a community. But, but I think we can take that, that idea of peace even further. Uh, James, in chapter 4, reminds us that, that the real issue, the, the real locus, the real focus of, of whether or not you have peace is, is inside you. He says to the believers in James chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The, the real problem then is, is in the human heart, isn't it? Uh, the, the world tries to establish peace by dealing with it on the international level or perhaps on the community level, trying to get people to stop killing one another, stop abusing one another. Perhaps even within families, trying to work against sexual abuse and other terrible things that happen within households. But, but the real issue, Scripture says, is the human heart. You don't have peace outside because you don't have peace inside. Isaiah Chapter 57 describes our condition this way. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Paul in Romans, chapter 3, puts it this way. He is talking about Jews and Gentiles, and he says, well, is, is either better than the other? No. He goes on to quote from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He concludes his quotations with the way of peace they have not known. They... They don't know how to live in peace. That's what he's saying. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's the human predicament in a nutshell, isn't it? We don't know peace because we're not a peaceful people. And, of course, uh, ultimately, the... The real war that's going on is our war with God, isn't it? Way back in the, in the Garden of Eden, that war was initiated. 
Okay, Adam and Eve aligned themselves with Satan. They chose to rebel against their creator. And they initiated the human war against God. And all these other symptoms that have been talking about, the worry and anxiety inside, the conflict within homes, within communities, the fighting in the international level, all those are simply manifestations of that war that the human race has waged against God. Well, what does our text offer as the answer, the response of God to this? It is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Now, when, when you read Prince, don't think prince like in the fairy tales or prince like you read in the news, these immoral guys that do all kinds of stuff and then someday become kings. Okay, don't, don't think of a worldly prince. Think of this kind of prince. This is what the term means in, in the scriptures. A prince was a warrior commander. Okay, they didn't sit around in some, some palace. They led the battle. Okay, the princes were the warrior commanders. And, and, and so that's the word here. This is a warrior commander of peace. And, well, we, we should already know it because he shows up in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, you remember there in the narrative, the People of God uh, are poised to go into the promised land. And, and it's not just going to be handed to them. They're going to have to fight for it. Okay, That's God's will. He's going to punish the Canaanites for their ungodliness and at the same time give this land to his people. And Joshua's preparing for that momentous event. They're going to attack right at the middle of Canaan, right right. Uh, between north and south and split the Canaanites and then they're going to devastate them to the north and to the south. Uh, strategy of divide and conquer. And Joshua is probably thinking about that 24-7 because he's, he's the warrior commander for God's people. But just before they, they enter the land, he's He's out by himself, evidently. Perhaps he's thinking over the battle plans, thinking about what he's going to say to the troops before they go in. And he's, a, he's a, on, on, the, on the west side of the Jordan. They haven't crossed over yet. And he's perhaps even looking across the Jordan. It's not a big river. So he's looking across it, perhaps, at that territory they're going to take. And, and suddenly, someone else shows up. This, this figure shows up. Behold, a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Suddenly, there's this warrior in front of him. And Joshua, true to form, he's not one to back down under any circumstances. <laughs> uh, he says, are you for us or against us? He's ready to start the fight right here. 
Are you for us or for our adversaries? And this figure answers him, no. <laughs> In other words, neither one. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. That's our word in our text. And he announces then to Joshua, Now I have come. And Joshua fell to his face, on his face to the earth and worshipped and says, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua has an encounter with the warrior commander of peace. That's the figure in our text. That's the figure of our text. We see him prophesied in Micah, in a text you're probably familiar with. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Whose coming forth is from abode from ancient days. In other words, he is a divine ruler. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. That's what I want you to think when you read this text. This warrior commander of peace is peace. He is peace personified. And what is it that makes him peace personified? Well, in a fallen world, where people are at war against God, the only way in which there will be peace is if the war is ended. if God defeats his enemies. And indeed, we know that day will come. We see that warrior commander in the book of Revelation, don't we? He rides out at the head of his armies, and actually he's the only one that does the fighting because he kills by the word of his mouth. He slaughters his enemies. His, his robe is splashed with their blood. He's going to defeat his enemies. Well, that's bad news <laughs> for the human race, isn't it? How can this be good news? And that's the way it's presented in Israel, of course. This is the good news to bring joy where there's been gloom and anguish and sadness, right? Well, it's because that warrior commander of peace fights a different battle first. That warrior commander of peace fights sin and death. That sin and death that enslaved his people. And where was that dreadful battle? Where was that fearful contest more grim than any earthly conflict? Where did the king of glory agonize in gory death and the water and blood pour out from the broken heart in his lifeless form? 
How do you know? It was the place of the skull. The execution ground where the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, and the son of God did his mighty work of redemption by giving his life for the sake of his sheep. No other warrior, no other army, no other human power unleashed by human hand or mind could have won this battle. No other victory in the history of the human race could have brought about this peace. It is the peace that Christ bought for his people on the cross. Isaiah describes it this way in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy that God gave right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. When God said to Satan, I will put enmity, I will put warfare between you and the woman. Do you hear what he's saying with that, with that phrase? He's saying, Satan, you've got the man and woman on your side. You've got the human race on your side, but I will not let that stand. I will break that alliance. I will produce enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It will be in that bruising, in that crushing, in that death that salvation will come. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In, in Jesus' work on the cross, he reconciles us to God, because the only way in which we could be reconciled with God is if our sin was dealt with. And so God himself takes the wrath of that he has against sin on himself for our sake so that we can know peace with him. And out of that peace flows peace to others. Do you have that peace? Do you have that peace? How do we experience that peace? 
you've come to faith in Christ. Perhaps you know it up here, you've got the PSB. You don't quite have it down here yet in your heart. Well, I think we experience this peace when we keep our eyes on this warrior commander of peace. It's so tempting for us when we're not feeling peaceful to focus on ourselves, right? To look within, to try to change something within, or to look without, try to change something out there so we have that peace. Let me encourage you to, to look to Christ and what he has done, because it's his work that has bought your peace with God. And if you can really get a hold of that, that becomes such a transforming idea in you, a transforming truth in you, that then that peace begins to, to show you the way to live. You begin to walk in the way of peace because you know the one who is peace. Here's Paul again in Ephesians chapter 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This peace that you have, if you're united with Christ by faith, has nothing to do with your works. You did not earn this peace. You did not deserve this peace. It is entirely of grace. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because you've been united with Christ by faith, and he is your peace, that the reality that exists for you now, how God sees you now, is already with Christ in heaven. Do you, do you see how that, that changes your perspective? You're, you're no longer stuck down here. You're seeing things from the perspective of Christ. He's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you see from Christ's perspective, you see that he looks upon his people with grace and with mercy and with love. And this is the gift of God, he says, not a result of works, so that no one can burst, may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. And how is that going to be manifest? Well, it's going to be manifest first within his church, within his people. And so Paul goes on to talk about this amazing reconciliation that has taken place. See, sin alienates. Sin separates us. Even from people we want to be close to. Times sin becomes a wedge in our relationship. It separates us from people. God in Christ reconciles us with one another. And so Paul uses the, the, the example of two groups that, that, that are totally 
different from one another, estranged from one another, Jews and Gentiles. They're different in terms of culture. They're different in terms of ethnic background. They're different in terms of religion. They're, they're virtually in every way different. And Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, this is the Gentiles, you and I, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He's created a new people for himself, uniting them in peace. Through him, then, he says, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You receive peace. God makes peace with you, not as a, an isolated individual, but as a member of his body, of his church. And so the very first manifestation of that peace that he has bought for you at that great price is your connection with other believers. Now we can see why Jesus said to his disciples, this is the way the world will know that you're my followers, if you love one another. That will be the evidence, because in our natural state, we don't love one another. We're separated, we're alienated from one another. But in, in the church, God has performed this miracle of bringing together people who are so different and uniting us in Christ The warrior commander of peace has bought this for you. When you're tempted to doubt this peace, when you're tempted to think, I, I don't really have this, I must not have it, I, I, I don't see in myself the kind of a person who has this peace, don't look at yourself. Look at Christ. Meditate on what he has done to purchase this peace for you. This is why he came to earth. So that he could do battle on your behalf and lay down his life for you. Can you doubt that he's given you his peace? If you think about what he's done for you. And notice, too, the, the end result. Okay, this isn't, 
this isn't to say you're the end yourself, right? You probably noticed in that passage from Ephesians that I read that, that he speaks of a temple at the end here. Now, what's a temple for? In biblical terms, a temple is for glorifying God. It's for worshiping God. What God is doing in reconciling this people to himself and to one another is he's creating a structure that glorifies him. It brings glory to him. That, that marvelous city in, Revela in Re the book of Revelation where God himself dwells, his people become the temple. And so you can have just a little foretaste of that here in your relationships with one another as believers. Hey, let's close with this promise from Isaiah chapter 26. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You are not a stable rock. We are not consistent people, but we know a God who is eminently stable. He is the rock. Keep your focus on him and know his peace. Let's pray together. Only Father, in the midst of a world of conflict, when that conflict even creeps into our own homes, our own relationships, our own worries and anxieties, Lord, keep our eyes fixed on you, the warrior commander of peace, the one who has won peace for us at such great price. Help us appreciate more deeply that, that love that you showed to us in coming to do battle on our behalf, a battle that ended with peace between us and you. Enable us, Lord, to walk in that peace. Even this week, may peace characterize our, our way of living as we keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.